Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to Sunday service. My name is uh, Nayaswami Bharat, and this is uh, Nayaswami Anandi. And I'd like to read from Ways of the One Light. Our uh, topic today is Why Do Devotees Fall? And stay tuned because uh, next week we'll be on uh, why do dev- How Do Devotees Rise? <laughs> <laughs> Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. An endlessly fascinating question is, why did Judas fall after receiving the extraordinary blessing of being accepted into the inner circle of Jesus Christ's disciples? For Judas was one of the twelve apostles, yet he betrayed Jesus and earned him, uh, for himself the, I had trouble with this word before, um, the, okay, we have a substitute, the contempt of Christendom for all futurity for his sin. We find Judas reprimanding Jesus just days before that betrayal. Jesus, aware that his disciples would soon be facing with his death the supreme tragedy of their lives, allowed Mary to express her devotion by anointing his feet with costly ointment. This act of wanton waste, as Judas saw it, awakened the indignation that the, uh, in that disciple. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and kept the purse and bare what was uh, put there therein. Then Jesus said, let, let her alone. Against this day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me ye have not always. Doubt not the power of delusion. Respect it. Indeed, fear it. For though not in the sense of cowering before it, for as Yogananda said, one is not safe until he attains Nirvakalpi Samadhi the state of final union with God. Judas, through attachment to money, opened his consciousness to the subtle influences which may be called satanic, that drew his thoughts towards other related attitudes, the importance of worldly power, for instance, and of worldly influence. The Bhagavad Gita gives a graphic explanation of how easily the mind can be drawn downward once it begins to feed on strong attitudes. In the second chapter, Sri Krishna states, if one ponders on sense objects, there springs up attraction to them. From attraction grows desire. Desire impatient for fulfillment flames to anger. From anger, there arise infatuation. The delusion that one object alone is worth clinging to to the exclusion of all others. From infatuation ensues forgetfulness of the higher self. From from forgetfulness of the self follows degeneration of of, of the discriminative faculty. And when discrimination is lost, there follows the annihilation of one's spiritual life. At the first thought of delusion, Paramahansa Yogananda said, That is the time to stop it. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh.
Well, welcome, everyone. It's so nice to be here together today with all of you, especially our guests and visitors and those joining us on the internet as well. I'll begin by reading from Whispers from Eternity, a book of prayers and poems by Paramahansa Yogananda. The raft of my life, tossed about helplessly by the driving storms of need, was drifting toward rocks of insatiable desire. O pole star in our wisdom skies, thy twinkling light beckoned and directed me toward thy shores of eternal contentment. Though countless mechanisms pound, twist, or stretch my anguished nerves, yet will the homing pigeon of my love wing its way peacefully toward its true home in thee. just want to read that last line. Yet will the homing pigeon of my love wing its way peacefully toward its true home in thee. So beautiful. Well, as I often say, this is an extremely important reading today. The subject... Why devotees fall, it's pretty universal. As long as there's gravity, somebody's going to be falling. It may be just a stumble. It may be flat on your face, but we're all going to feel that sense of going down. And so this reading really talks about why does that happen and what can we do to prevent that from happening or at least to pull ourselves out of it. As the reading said, it's very interesting that, in a way, we sort of write Judas off, don't we? We just go, oh, he's evil, he falls into the category of Hitler and all the villains through history, and we don't really think about Judas. But the truth is, according to Yogananda, Judas was a prophet. He was a highly evolved disciple, otherwise he could not have been one of Jesus' close disciples, one of the twelve. You, you can't just slide into a position like that. You have to be highly, highly evolved. Uh, Yogananda said that he knew Jesus in the 20th century, he, and that, that Jesus, uh, he knew Judas, and that actually Jesus asked an Indian master to liberate Judas in that lifetime. So that's quite something, and it shows he must have been very highly evolved, and yet he made one of the great blunders of history. And so the reading from the Gita shows us how that happens. And rather than scorn Judas, we should say, I better look at this seriously. How did this happen? And I want to pay attention to this in my own life. So the Gita says if we start getting involved with something material, something outwardly, pretty soon we feel an attraction to it. And once we feel that attraction to it, the more we do, soon we feel a desire for it. And if we can't get that desire fulfilled, we get angry. And as we get angry, our our awareness becomes more clouded, and pretty soon we really lose our connection to our spiritual ideals. So this is the journey, and it's one that bears looking at. You know, there's something that we don't talk about here very often, but we need to know, we need to be conscious of this. We are disciples of 
a great direct disciple of Yogananda. We are second generation from an avatar. And that's, again, you don't slide into a position like that. And so we meet people who come to Ananda, and what are they saying? They're saying, I want to find God. They're saying, I want to be free of my karma. We're saying, I want to get, out of, I want to get free of ego. And these are s- sincere and deep prayers. And we can't expect that we're not going to meet with some obstacles to that. We've spent, according to the Indian scriptures, we've pe- spent five to eight million lives creating karma. <laughs> Good karma, bad karma, but we've just kind of blithely gone along churning it out, and in this life we're saying, I want to be free, and that means I have to get rid of my ego. So there's going to be a fight there from the ego and also from our karma. I was thinking about this. When you get to the end of your karma, have you ever seen this in the movies where the hero finally kills the evil, evil villain, and he's, he's sort of dragging himself off this battlefield, and the villain rises again (laughs) and comes back with renewed vigor at the hero. And the hero has to once again fight him. I think that's a pretty good image for the last of our karma. We're working on things, we're working on things, we're trying to be free, and then we get to the very end of something and it fights very, very hard. So many people that I know uh, in this community and probably online are are facing that kind of karma. And how do we know about that? I think if there's something in your life that when you look at your life, you go, oh, if only this weren't happening. If only I had my finances together, then I could get on with my life. If only I weren't ill, I I could live the life I was supposed to. And we have to realize that that if only is probably the reason we incarnated was to work on that, okay? So it needs to happen. There's a um, recording of Yogananda's voice, and at one point he says, you don't know why you came here. Why do you pray for this thing and that? What he's meaning is that what you're not liking is exactly why I'm working with you on this. It's exactly why you incarnated to, to work it out. When Bharat was in high school, he joined the wrestling team. And the wrestling team was brand new to his high school, so not one of the boys had any experience wrestling. And the coach, for I don't know how many weeks, day after day, worked with them on a pose called bridging. And bridging is a pose very like the yoga pose, the bridge pose, except that you come up on the top of your head, so you use your strength of your neck and your back to... When you're pinned by your opponent, you use your strength of your back and your neck to push him off so you can have another chance to try and beat him. Well, these young boys, you know, they'd gone out for wrestling and they were so excited. They wanted to learn how to pin people. They wanted to learn all the fancy moves. And they kept working and working on this bridging pose and um, to the point where they actually couldn't move their necks anymore. They had to to turn, to, to look to the side, they had to turn like this. But of course, being brand new wrestlers, they were spending a lot of their games on their back. (laughs) And so even though they thought they were more advanced moves, their coach knew, no, you've got to learn how to get off your back. That's the key element. And so what we think 
we need is not necessarily what we need, and what we have right in front of us is most likely exactly what we need. Swami Kriyananda said that in this lifetime, we really come to learn one or two major lessons. That's it. I mean, there's so many things that happen in one lifetime, and yet underneath it, there's one or two major lessons that we have to learn. And I had a very inspiring experience. Just a few weeks ago, we had a holistic health program here, and I was coaching one of the guests. And um, she said in her first session that she wanted to work on three things, and one of them was regret. And I asked her more about regret. And she said that she looked at her life, she was, I think, 50, and she saw choices that she'd made, and because of those choices, she felt that her life hadn't turned out the way she wanted it to. Of course, the choices were now irreversible, so she was left with regret. Well, we talked about that for a while, and when I went home that night and meditated, clarity came. And I said to her the next day what I just told you, that Swami Kriyananda said that you really come to learn just one or two lessons in this life. I said, what do you think your lesson might be in this life? And she said, getting over regret? (laughs) I said, yeah. And so we talked about the fact that she could have made the opposite choices in those many circumstances, gotten what she thought she wanted, and still have regret, because that was the lesson she came to learn. And so then we talked about some tools. Rather than seeing regret as this part of her life, she was able, and I just, I wrote, I just wrote her yesterday to see if she's still doing it, and she said, yes, she's, she's still doing this. She's treating regret not as a fact, but rather as something she came to transmute in this lifetime. And so when it comes, she breathes joy into her heart, she refocuses her energy here, she practices her daily meditation, and she's going to overcome that in this lifetime. It's very thrilling. So we want to look at our lives and say, okay, I don't want this in my life, but it is there. And What is that about? What is that about? If we find ourselves getting into negativity right away, we should hear an alarm going off in our head. That alarm is the signal. This is, I'm heading on the slippery slope here. If that negativity is about something happening in the world, if that negativity is the way people are treating you, if that negativity is internal, it's about something that you don't like about yourself, either way, It's still the beginning of that losing perspective and losing the direction of where we're trying to go. Um, Swami, in the reading, talks about the satanic influence. And he describes the satanic influence other places as that Satan is that part of universal consciousness that is attracted to our lower nature. And that once we turn toward it, increases that part of our lower nature. And Master tells us that basically God sits on one shoulder, Satan sits on the other, and they just sit there. They can't do anything until we invite them. Okay? God can't help us until we invite God. 
Satan can't help us until we invite him. So we're trying to pay attention to who we're, who we're inviting into our life and turn toward that. There's a very interesting excerpt from um, Yogananda's interpretation of the second coming of Christ. It's a parable. I'd never read this before. It's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And the parable is this. There was a farmer who had his farm workers plant wheat in the field. But while they slept, someone came in and planted weeds. And um, when everything started growing up, the, the farm workers came to their farmer and they said, what happened? You know, we only planted wheat. And he said, well, our enemy planted weeds. And they said, well, do you want us to go in and pull out the weeds right now? And he said, no, because if you pull the weeds out now, you're going to disturb the wheat. So let them both grow, and um, when they're both grown, we'll be able to pull out the weeds and burn them. Well, Master's interpretation of this is very uh, powerful. He said basically that the wheat is the fruit of our meditative efforts. And the weeds are the subconscious tendencies that we've brought with us. And the farm workers are our self-control, our spiritual habits. And rather than have the farm workers, they ask the farmer, shall we go pull out those weeds? He said, no, because if you focus on the bad qualities, you might not put enough energy into the good qualities. So I want you to focus on your spiritual qualities. Strengthen your spiritual qualities, and when you get developed enough, you will have the strength to use the delusion-annihilating power of spirit to burn those bad habits. And that can happen even along the way. I suspect some of us have found it, and my friend with regret is starting to use it. We develop our meditation, and sometimes we can just take those qualities and offer them into the light, and they're gone. So we want to keep our focus on where we're going, where that light is, and how we can use that light. God is performing surgery on us. We, uh, we came to God, we said, you know, I want to be free of my karma, I want to get rid of my ego. He said, okay, I need to open you up. I need to go in there. There's some obstacles. There's some blockages in there. We need to remove those blockages. Unfortunately, he is operating without anesthesia. (laughs) And therefore, therefore, it's extremely painful. And it happens very, very often that in the middle of that surgery, you go, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm leaving now. You know, you have your little hospital gown and you're climbing (laughs) off the table. And it's not going to be pretty because he's not done yet. You're not sewed up. It's not complete. The operation is not over. So we have to stay there. We have to trust the process. When it's complete, we will feel much better. We will feel a freedom that we didn't really know we could have. Master said that this life, this is so beautiful. He said this life is a a battle between pain and love. Pain and love. God wants to see 
if in pain we choose love. Now, the pain doesn't have to be physical. The pain can be emotional. The pain can be confusion. The pain can be many different things. But God is waiting to see, do we love him unconditionally? Do we trust him unconditionally? Do we love him no matter what's happening? And when we do that, this is what he's looking for. Master said, no matter what you've done, if you can once say, I love God, you'll be free. If we can say it from the very, very depths of our being, I love you no matter what you send to me, here I am, I'm yours. It doesn't mean that we can't, if we need a job, we can't pray for a job. It doesn't mean that we aren't trying to improve ourselves and better our lives. But it means that whatever's happening, we know it's coming from love, and we're in that love. There was a woman who came here as a guest. This was quite a few years ago. I just recently remembered it. She was quite, had went through quite an unusual story. She was in a very, very bad car accident and had to have surgery over the course of two years. And during that time, with all that pain that she was in, she, she became addicted to morphine because she had to take morphine all the time for the pain. And so her doctor said to her, okay, we're going to take you off of morphine and, and put you on this drug that's less addictive than morphine. And she said, no, she's a very strong woman. She said, that doesn't make any sense. Why should I go from one addiction to another addiction? So what she said, she went to her husband and she said, no matter what I say to you in the next three days, do not give me any drugs. And so she just went off morphine. And she said that the pain was unbelievable. <laughs> she said every cell in her body was screaming for morphine. She was in so much pain, and she was begging her husband, and she was, you know, forget what I said, I've changed my mind, you know, the whole thing. And of course, he had to watch her, <clears throat> which could not have been easy either. But at the end of three days, she was on the other side of it. She was off of that drug. And so we have something similar going on in our lives. <clears throat> we have our own little addictions. <clears throat> they may be to things that are, excuse me, <clears throat> kind of more wholesome. They may be to things like friendship or financial security or something like that. But we have to realize that God is trying to wean us from that. He's trying to get us to the point of being able to say, whatever it is, I love you, I'll take it, I'm happy to be doing this. We are trying to more and more tune into this, that no matter what happens, God is always behind us. There was a very beautiful article in the last Clarity newsletter uh, written by a lady from our Rhode Island center called Kyle, who's been a devotee of Master for many years. And I won't tell you the whole story. I urge you to uh, look in Clarity magazine. If you don't have it, you can Google it um, and find it. But she uh, was invited to go visit a, a visiting um, saint had come to the Rhode Island area, and she and some Ananda people went to see him. And she wanted to be sure that she wasn't going against her loyalty to her guru, and so she prayed strongly to Master that he used the situation and so forth. And so they went to this saint, 
and he knew who they were. And so he began to talk to them about loyalty to the guru and about how much Yogananda was taking care of them in every part of their life. And he said, there will be challenges that come into your life, and your guru will protect you. And he looked at Kyle, and he said, he'll even protect your little dog. Well, she adores her little dog. I mean, he, obviously she hadn't talked to the saint about the fact that she had a dog, but he knew. And so then what happened is many, many months went by. The whole event was forgotten in her mind. And I won't tell you the whole story, but basically her little 15-pound dog was attacked by a 90-pound dog. And this dog really went after him and inflicted mortal wounds on this little dog. And then meanwhile, she actually ran out and with sort of superhuman courage, was fighting this dog and pulling him off her dog. And very, very long story in a very short time. They both ended up in the hospital, she and her dog. And she was feeling quite shaken, and she said even her faith was shaken because the whole experience was so violent. And, um, and of course, she was terribly worried about her dog. And as she lay in the hospital, she suddenly remembered this visit and what the man had told her and how he had said, you will be protected, your dog will be protected. And suddenly she felt, Master is watching all of it. He's watching all of it, and he's with us. And lo and behold, she was fine. Her little dog, his, his belly had been actually torn open by this dog. He was fine. He lived another four years. And <clears throat> but the sense that no matter what it is that's happening, the guru does know. And there, there is a watchful presence happening. So what we want to do is tune into his vibration. Davy told a story recently about something that happened earlier this year. She got a bad case of bronchitis, really bad. She was just <clears throat> coughing nonstop. <clears throat> and she woke up in the middle of one night feeling terrible, as you always feel when you're very sick. And she was sitting there in the dark thinking, what is real? I love this. I love that we have friends that are, have terrible illness and they're thinking, what is real? And she thought, what is real is God's joyful presence within me, in my heart. And so she began to try and tune into that. And as she tuned into it, calmness came and she fell asleep. And I want to say that that story is very important because you don't have to wait till you have bronchitis. You might not get bronchitis. But you can use it when you're washing the dishes. You can use it when you have to do something that you don't want to be doing or you're not feeling all that great or you're just feeling bored or blah or whatever. What is real? What is real? God's joy. And I want to share with you an end in this way Something that I just read of Yogananda is it's a technique that he gave that I've been practicing for the last few months, and I think it's a very important technique. He said to do this as you're lying in bed before you fall asleep and as you wake up in the morning before you get out of bed. And of course, during those times, our subconscious is open. So whatever we put into our mind then, whether it's an affirmation or a technique like this, it sticks with us more. And what he said to do is he said, lie on your back, completely relaxed, forget about time, and first pray to God. Pray to feel his blessing. Pray to feel his love. And continue to pray until you feel a sense of 
satisfaction in your heart. You feel you've been heard. You feel an answering presence in your heart. And when you feel that, concentrate your mind here. Put your gaze there, put your focus there, and repeat the words, Om Spirit, oh, exhale. Then exhale, and on your exhalation, repeat the words, Om Spirit Bliss, Om Spirit Bliss. Now, I'm not sure the words are important. This was written in the 30s, and in later years, Master often used um, God Christ Guru or something like that. But the, but the technique is the key thing. And so I think Om Spirit Bliss is great to use. And so what we're going to do, we're going to end with this. And so what we're going to do now, I don't want you to lie on your back, and it will be a little hard. But think of yourself lying on your back. Relax your body. And first pray to feel God's love, God's joy in your heart. And now then inhale and exhale completely. And while your breath is out, repeat many times as you can. Om, silently, Om Spirit Bliss. You're focusing at the spiritual eye. So while you're focusing there, send those words. Om Spirit Bliss, Om Spirit Bliss, Om Spirit Bliss. As many times as you can to the point between the eyebrows. And then breathe when you need to. You might need a couple of breaths to then do it again. And you repeat this as often as you can. He said up to 24 times. So as you do it, you find you're able to stay longer with that exhalation. Let's just, we'll do it one more time. People still have their eyes closed. So inhale and then exhale. Concentrating a spiritual eye. Om Spirit Bliss. Om Spirit Bliss. And breathe whenever you need to. So, we want to develop the habit of going to the seat of God at the spiritual eye, Om Spirit Bliss. And I'd like to close by sharing something that Swami said in the Living Wisely, Living Well books. He said, no matter what your faults are, no matter what your virtues are, put increasing energy on that which will give you, on that which is most likely to bring you bliss. So God is wanting us to open ourselves to his bliss, to his love. Amen.